0: Since the 1980s, China's economy grew rapidly, driven by investment in infrastructure and low-cost manufacturing. In the past couple of years, however, it has encountered headwinds. The growth of labor force and productivity has slowed down. In 2021, the tech sector was hobbled by a regulatory crackdown, and a strict zero-COVID policy continues to erode business confidence. Add to it the escalating trade war between China and the US and the crisis in China's property market and the prospects of the world's second-largest economy are uncertain. Welcome to Asia Perspectives from Economist Impact. I'm Piotr Zembrowski. This is the second episode in a five-episode series, Shelter from the Storm, Investing in the Era of Uncertainty. In the first episode, we looked at the trade disruptions due to the COVID pandemic and the realignment of global supply chains. Today, we look at the dominant role of China in Asia's economy and the effect its slowdown might have on the region. The podcast series is supported by Equities First. The opinions of our guests are their own, and the editorial control remains with economist impact. We have two guests today, both of whom have extensive experience in investment advice and wealth management in the region. Raymond Cheng is Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer for North Asia at Standard Chartered Bank in Hong Kong. Until earlier this year, he was Head of Asia Equity Strategy at JP Morgan, and before that, he headed Equity Research at Bocom International and BOC International. Raymond, welcome to the podcast. Hi Peter, hi everyone. Martin Haneke is Head of Asia Investment Advisory at St James Place Wealth Management. His career in market and investment research, portfolio management, and financial advice spans over 20 years in Germany and in Hong Kong when he's lived since 2001. Martin, we're glad to have you with us today. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's just dive into it. Martin, in your conversations with clients who must be worried about risks from their
1: exposure to China, what do you tell them? Well, first of all, for investors... It would mean one has got to be conscious of all the different types of risks out there. Right now, there's a lot of very jittery investors out there. There's there's much fear and pessimism. And there's a question of whether one should sell this or that or buy this or that, or stay safe in cash and all this volatility. My point is there that you have negative real interest rates and much across the world already at this point. And so you have to know that there's nothing really that represents ultimate safety. Every asset class will have got different types of risks and opportunities, including fixed interest, including cash holdings nowadays as well, due to this inflationary pressures. And perhaps a bit more specifically, when I look at the equity market in China right now, it's been very, very depressed historically uh, on a valuations basis. In fact, even more so in some of the Hong Kong-listed China companies that at a further, I mean, the dual-listed ones that trade at a further 33% discount to the mainland ones.
0: Martin, I know that you've been stressing the importance of understanding of the threat from the inflationary pressures and high interest rates, in particular, the threat to sovereign debt of not only emerging countries, but also developed economies who may find their level of debt
1: unsustainable in the long term. What is your view on this? And so there's one point I would like to make there, and that has got impacts around the world, including China. When we look at sovereign bond yields so far this year, how they have been going up in a number of countries, the UK crisis example raises the specter of sovereign debt pressures across many places. There's a report done by the Congressional Budget Office in the US. There's one chart showing how they project the net interest to grow very, very substantially over the coming years, and basically on an unsustainable path, with 40% of the entire revenue of the US having to go to interest payments by 2052. What that means, big picture, is we might see sustained high inflationary pressures reverberating all around the world, as the major central banks might be having to admit that debt in many places is just so high that they can't. Keep it up to this level. So I think that's an important background to understand because it will affect investors and savers everywhere around the world. And I think one thing that investors might not have fully understood or appreciated yet when I look at the outlook going forward is that when you look at sheltering from inflation from, from an investor, there are different types of assets. People are immediately associate property or commodities with it, but then equities also fundamentally speaking, medium to long term, typically it represents companies that can pass on prices to consumers as long as the economy remains reasonably stable. So we have to make that assumption here. I'm just saying it uh, principally. And so therefore, in our view, equities as an asset class then can still form an important part of making portfolios or investments inflation-proof. And I think if only for the reason of valuations, for the reason of growing inflationary risk, I think certainly there are some good opportunities to consider in Chinese equities as part of a globally diversified portfolio, of course.
0: Raymond, are you as worried about the effect of the inflation and high interest rates? And because we are focusing on China economy today, how do these factors play out there?
2: What has been interesting is that we are almost in a globally deflationary kind of environment. But what is also interesting is when we see in onto China, we are definitely seeing a very different uh, macro environment. We are seeing subpar economic growth this year with not much in the way of uh, inflationary pressure. That's partly uh, cushioned by the fact that China has been undertaking very strict zero-COVID policies coupled with tightening uh, bias on, on the housing market. So we are seeing subpar GDP growth, probably around 3% growth this year. And as a result, uh, we are not really seeing upward pressure in interest rate. But to your question about any risk of uh, softened debt non-repayment, uh, we have been seeing property developers defaulting, right? on some of the offshore bonds. And I think this is quite concerning to the capital markets because after all, a lot of the global market participants had been trading a lot of these Chinese property bonds with very decent yields in the past and I believe that uh, now with continued tightening mode on the China property market, there's a growing risk that this housing wide situation need to be resolved one way or the other, that either the Chinese authorities will have to loosen further to enable more of these highly leveraged developers to be able to refinance their debt, or more of these developers, especially non-state-owned entities, would see a growing default
0: risk. The continuing adherence to the zero-COVID policies, the frequent random lockdowns, the onerous quarantine requirements are all sapping the strength of China's economy. And China's economy is the second largest in the world. It dominates Asia-Pacific and is tightly linked to most economies in the region. How has China's zero-COVID policy been affecting other countries?
2: We do think that this zero-COVID policy focus has taken roughly 3 to 4% off China's GDP growth in general. And So that is not just negative to the Chinese economy, because after all, a lot of these economies in Asia are intertwined these days in terms of supply chain connectivity. So we do think for markets such as like commodity driven economies like Australia, those would be impacted, right? In the near term, should the zero COVID policy continue. And it's also something for businesses, for entrepreneurs to rethink, right? It's important to diversify the supply chain on a global basis. So we are increasingly hearing a focus on China++, plus plus, right? To diversify the footprint of the business presence into one or two other economies in the region. And it doesn't mean, uh, to be clear, it doesn't mean that they would exit China. China is definitely a very focal market. A lot of the industries um, that used to leverage cheap labor in China have been, if not already, right, looking to ASEAN markets as well as markets like Vietnam uh, to diversify into. And a lot of the electronic supply chains are also being diversified in order to ensure there is some contingency plan on hand. right? And we are even seeing uh, markets like India that were not viewed as a complementary market before are now being looked upon to diversify as part of the global supply chain.
1: I would just like to add one point as well on this discussion, which is that there's the RCEP free trade agreement as well. And I think we will see soon some benefits coming through to a number of the countries in, in the region. And Japan is one where I see particularly or particular potential, not just because of RCEP, actually, but also a number of other factors. Starting off with the valuation question again, as you know, investment advisors we always have a keen eye on this one. I mentioned that on China previously, but Japanese equity valuations also sit at the very bottom of their historical range. And I think for a global investor, there's the valuation question. There's also the forex question at this stage. Arguably, one can buy Japanese assets with a considerable discount. I think there are a number of other benefits coming through uh, to companies. I mean, firstly, again, a lot of export tariffs to China will be reduced very substantially as part of the aforementioned agreement, but then also any company with production being sold overseas will gain higher forex revenues in yen terms. That could stimulate stock prices as well. They may be getting more competitive. And maybe briefly coming back to my very early original point of inflationary risk being the main risk in the end game of things, as debt is too high to be addressed. You know, that very, very much applies to Japan too. And if that's the case, I think slowly and Japan might be the prime example of this here, where you have had this long deflation and people have just loved sitting on cash. So over 50% of household savings are now sitting on cash and deposits another roughly 25 it's actually in insurance, etc. There's very, very little exposure to the equity and fund side. And so we might see a shift, you know. Potentially starting in Japan where this mindset is changing towards inflation proofing one's portfolio. It has started with more interest and property in the country, but it might also shift into equities as it's being more recognized going forwards. I believe that companies are relatively more inflation proof than, than cash uh, and fixed interest and then, and then can play an important role. So two major economies in the Asian region might have good potential, China and Japan. But there are surely good companies across the region as well, uh, offering opportunities. Personally, in terms of China, I mean, COVID and and the restrictions are a huge challenge. The property area is a big challenge. But I think overall, financial stability is quite sound. Banking system stability, I'm not concerned that there's a huge banking crisis or contagion as a result of the property difficulties.
0: The podcast series, Shelter from the Storm, Investing in the Era of Uncertainty, is supported by Equities First. Now, a word from our sponsor. Liquidity is one of the proven strategies to manage risks in financial markets in
2: turbulence and uncertainties. Equities First is your solution for redefined financing. For close to 20 years, we provide access to capital in 33 equity markets at favorable terms. While our partners retain 100% upside in their assets. For more information, please visit equitiesfirst.com.
0: We need to touch upon the ongoing trade war between the United States and China. During the past five years, the US imposed a wide range of trade barriers and tariffs And most recently, it announced restrictions on exports of advanced semiconductor chips to China. Uh, Raymond, what is your view on what's happening and where this may lead?
2: Sure. Well, we think that this trade tensions between the U.S. and China are deepening especially going into the midterm elections come November. And at the moment, the Biden administration is very focused on the semiconductor sector, primarily on expert controls of high-end chips specific to quantum computing and artificial intelligence. I think that that could slow the development in the near term of some of the high-end chip products, just because a lot of the upstream, including equipment suppliers around the world, would be confined to providing technologies and solutions to China to foster development in those regards. So that would impede near-term growth, not only to the regional players, but also to the U.S. semiconductor players themselves. Even back in the Cold War, we saw very tremendous tensions right between the united states and the soviet union but in the end we saw a lot of innovation foster out of that just because the competition between nations has intensified and incentivize the development of technologies on both fronts. In the midterm and long-term horizon, we are going to see a lot more initiatives, be it China or other countries in this region, that would be more focused on developing their proprietary technologies. So in other words, self-sufficiency would become more important from each economy standpoint. So we do stay optimistic that in this region, there are a lot of emerging chip producers and developers that could benefit from these tensions between the U.S. and China.
0: We should perhaps address the threat of delisting of over 200 Chinese companies from U.S. stock exchanges. Uh, they will be delisted by 2024 unless a deal is reached over the ability of U.S. auditors to fully audit these Chinese companies. How significant would it be for investors in China and abroad?
1: There has been already, you know, so much talk about the listings. Some have been happening, et cetera, et cetera, that I think a lot of the fears by now are already priced in when you look at the valuation picture. Also, fundamentally, when you think about it, it's not really that natural that as China matures that you would still have all these listings in the United States. And so I think it's quite natural that you see This sort of being reduced or being slowly phased out as the uh, markets in China themselves are maturing. This regards to the exchanges there could bring some opportunities to Hong Kong, potentially valuation-wise. But of course, as with the risks in the tax sanctions that we talked about earlier, there may be always a risk of certain companies and sectors that about specifics of how and when the listings might happen.
2: A lot of these Chinese names were the icons before, right? Most of which are traded in the form of ADRs were viewed by global investors were highly representative of what Chinese equities are. And um I think they, the valuations have definitely been decimated. Now, some of these mega cap names trade at like mid teen kind of for PE multiples. So I'm not suggesting that that would be the bottom of this valuation, because after all, we still need to look out for audit examination results, right, that is going on in Hong Kong. So there's still an overhead there. But should there be some progress on the audit inspection front, these names could see re-rating, because after all, a lot of these uh, major internet leaders have done a good job, like despite the ch- Challenging market to deliver our earnings growth. Going into the next decade, right, we are increasingly looking to the onshore China equity market, i.e. A shares for the next decade of growth opportunities because many of these frontier and or emerging industries, be it semiconductor, be it uh, new energy vehicles or some of the advanced materials uh, suppliers listed in the domestic onshore market as opposed to in the United States. So these industries tend to be of more strategic importance, not only to the Chinese authority standpoint, but also from the Chinese institutional or retail investor standpoint. Some of the select internet names uh, could provide opportunities um, should there be progress on, on the other inspection front. And lastly, I think it's important to also think about quality, especially given the highly uncertain macro environment, right? We are seeing a lot of these Chinese listed companies have the ability to deliver sustainable uh, dividends. But this bucket used to be an area largely ignored by the global investment community. And so we think that uh, we could also be opportunistic buyers of uh, some of these quality, high dividend yielding equity names in order to mitigate some of the volatility facing the um, growth-oriented stocks. But broadly speaking, holding some uh, some level of cash is highly important these days, not only to cushion some of the downside, but also to provide us with ammunition to charge in should there be any market capitulation.
0: So despite serious challenges and obvious economic and geopolitical risks, I'm hearing some optimism and that there are investment opportunities if you look for them both inside China and in the region. Considering all these challenges and risks, Martin, what do you advise your clients today?
1: What's always my first investment advice, having observed investor behavior and markets for 20 plus years, is always not to be overly confident of any one particular prediction or any one particular asset class and to be very careful with any type of leverage uh, used so that one doesn't get stepped out or receives margin calls Now, having said that, if one doesn't have a lot of leverage, on the other hand, I would personally also suggest that holding too much cash isn't a good idea either. And for anyone sitting on larger amounts of cash, you know, particularly US solar cash, I think it's a really great opportunity to diversify and invest that globally and diversify across different asset classes. If one can tolerate a degree of volatility and can spare capital for the medium to long term. Then I think a portfolio with a good exposure to inflation type or inflation proof type of assets is a good idea. And that might very well include some property holdings, uh, equity holdings and other assets, basically, other than cash. But I think in some areas, crises have already happened. So holding too much cash to wait for a big crisis runs the risk of a missing rebounds and B also getting eroded in purchasing power terms if one tries there for too long, given what's happening. We would always stress the importance of diversification, but we may look at individual opportunities within companies. It's good not to try to, be, or to have too high convictions. We are in a world of very high geopolitical risk, very high risk of unexpected events and markets of various kinds, and one should just be um, conscious of the different types of things that might happen and hatch against a number of different scenarios. Well, we'll have to leave it
0: here today. I'm very glad that both of you were able to join us. Thank you, Raymond and Martin, for sharing your views and insights. And thank you to our listeners for spending time with us. Stay tuned for future episodes in the series Shelter from the Storm, Investing in the Era of Uncertainty. The series is supported by Equities First and is part of Asia Perspectives from Economist Impact. If you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or any work from Economist Impact, email us at asiaperspectives at economist.com. Please make sure to subscribe so that you receive updates when new podcast episodes become available. From the editorial team at Economist Impact, thank you for listening.